We are in the midst of a series in the book of Exodus. You probably picked up on themes already in the service, themes related to the house of the Lord, uh, related to the tabernacle or the dwelling place of our God. That's exactly where we find ourselves today in Exodus chapter 26 and Exodus uh, chapter 27, two lengthy uh, chapters that you may or may not be very familiar with in the Scriptures. They are detailed instructions with regards to the construction of the tabernacle. And very often, I'm afraid to say, I'm ashamed, I think, to say, even in my own mind and heart, that I kind of pass through these texts sometimes rather quickly um, and realize that um, there's a lot of details. I'm not sure my imagination's up to the task of being able to take in all of the instruction that's here, and I think it's very easy for us as 21st century readers of the, the text of Scripture, far removed from the tabernacle and the temple and a lot of the religious practices of the Old Testament to, in some sense, uh, wonder, what does this have to do with me? Uh, why spend even a, a Sunday on these two chapters, chapter 26 and, and 27? Well, I want to I want to reframe a little bit just of your own uh, thinking and maybe even draw a question up into your mind about what you think about when you approach the Word of God. When, when you approach the Word of God, are you primarily thinking about how does this passage of Scripture um, relate to me? Um, how is this passage of Scripture relevant for where it is that, that I am? And, and I, I want you to think, as you look back over, maybe you're reading this week, maybe the devotional literature that you're inclined uh, to read, and maybe the uh, clean pages of the Scripture, the places that don't have those coffee stains in your Bible, uh, the places that don't have the smudges from the dirty of your, your hands as you've worked through them, to say, why haven't you spent time there? And it might be because your, your own sensibilities want to drive the train of the Scriptures rather than letting uh, God's sensibilities uh, drive the train of your reading of Scripture. And that's something that we all need to be uh, calibrated around. And I want to just notice something in this text that kind of helps you see how God's sensibilities are really different than ours. When you think of the book of Exodus, what do you think about? Well, you think of the Exodus. Well, we've already done that. Like a long time ago, we did that. And if you think of anything else when you think of the Exodus, you know what you think of? You think of the Ten Commandments, right? You think of the law. You think of Exodus chapter 20. Well, we've done that. Notice there are 40 chapters in Exodus. And I just named half of them. Which means that like over half of the text of Exodus, you'd be going like, yeah, I don't really know what's in there. Right? And you're like, I know there's that golden calf story. Like, where the, that's 32. We're going to get there. But, but you know what's very interesting is from like 25 to 31, and then again, get this, from 35 to 40, almost 11 chapters of the book of Exodus are spent on the construction of the tabernacle. That's a lot more than you and I would choose. Which causes us to ask a question when we approach the text, doesn't it? Why are these sections of Scripture so important to the Lord? Maybe He has something in store and in view for us. Apart from our immediate felt needs of relevancy, how are these passages of Scripture revealing and revelation of God and His story of redemption? Of what He considers most important for you and me to know? With that in view, let's take a look of Ex at Exodus chapter 26 and 27 and this very important section of Scripture known as the building of the tabernacle. This is God's Word. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twined linen and blue and purple and scarlet yarns. You shall make them with cherubim skillfully worked into them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits, and the breadth of each curtain four cubits, and all the curtains shall be the same size. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another, and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue on the edge of the outermost curtain in the first set. 
And likewise, you shall make loops on the edge of the outermost curtain in the second set. Fifty loops you shall make on the one curtain, and fifty loops you shall make on the edge of the curtain that is in the second set. The loops shall be opposite one another. And you shall make fifty clasps of gold and couple the curtains one to another with the clasps so that the tabernacle may be a single whole. You shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the frames on the one side of the tabernacle and five bars for the frames on the other side of the tabernacle and five bars for the frames on the side of the tabernacle at the rear westward. The middle bar halfway up the frame shall run from end to end. You shall overlay the frames with gold and shall make their rings of gold for holders for the bars and you shall make overlay the bars with gold. And you shall erect the tabernacle according to the plan for it that you were shown on the mountain. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on the four pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold, on four bases of silver." You shall hang the veil from the class and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. And you shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. And you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand on the south side of the tabernacle opposite the table. And you shall put the table on the north side. You shall make a screen for the entrance of the tent, blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, embroidered with needlework. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be of gold, and you shall cast five bases of bronze for them. You shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. You shall make the poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. And the poles shall be put through the rings, so that the poles are on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with boards, and it shall be shown to you on the mountain. As it shall be shown to you on the mountain, so shall it be made. You shall make the court of the tabernacle. For the gate of the court, there shall be a screen, twenty cubits long, of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen, embroidered with needlework. It shall have four pillars, and with them four bases. All the pillars around the court shall be filleted with silver, and their hooks shall be of silver, and their bases of bronze. The length of the court shall be a hundred cubits, the breadth fifty And the height five cubits with hangings of fine twined linen and bases of bronze. All the utensils of the tabernacle for every use and all its pegs and all the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. You shall command the people of Israel that they bring to you pure beaten olive oil for the light that a lamp may regularly be set up to burn in the tent of meeting outside the veil that is before the testimony. Aaron and his son shall tend it from evening to morning. Before the Lord, it shall be a statute forever to be observed throughout their generations by the people of Israel. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Father in heaven, we do believe that this word and every word which you speak shall stand forever. We believe that not the smallest stroke or the 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 least dot would pass away from this law until all is fulfilled. We would ask, Lord, that you would come now and you would instruct us in the construction of the tabernacle and that you would point us to the one who tabernacled with us, even Jesus Christ, our Savior and King. We pray this in his holy name. Amen. You know, I have something of a, of a principle, you might say, of observing uh, the holidays. I'm thinking of the holidays a lot, right? It's November. I better start thinking of the holidays. And the observing principle that I have is that I, I, don't, I don't want to look ahead to future holidays. Uh, I, I want to look at the holiday nearest to the point of the calendar 
that, that I'm in. Like, for instance, this is November, so what holiday am I thinking about? Thinking about Thanksgiving, right? Thinking about, say, I heard Christmas somewhere over here. I'm not thinking about Christmas yet, but everybody else is thinking about Christmas. <laughs> Amazon is thinking about Christmas. They've been emailing me all week long. They are telling me that Black Friday now comes on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. Every day of the month of November is Black Friday. Yes, holiday shopping is apparently uh, upon us in every sense of the term. I, Friday night, I, um, well, I went to Lowe's late with my wife because we always need something from Lowe's late at night. And um, as I pulled up, I looked through the glass doors at Lowe's, and what did I behold? Christmas. It was shining. It was cascading. The light was pouring out into the parking lot. We were parked way, way back in the parking lot, like way, way back. And I was blinded by the light of the Christmas trees and the decorations and the light celebrating Christmas. And then I was appalled at a deeper Level even within the, uh, my own four walls of my home. And, and an egregious holiday trespass was made as I was minding my own business, you know, doing something spiritual like reading the Bible, praying, or watching the voice on television. I don't know what I was doing, but all of a sudden I, I heard the refrains of I'm dreaming of a white Christmas by Perry Como, just making its way through our house. And one of my children, who shall remain nameless, was the one who was guilty. I only try to think of the holiday that's right before me. I don't want to steal from the joys of that peculiar holiday before I get to celebrate it and rejoice in it. And then I want to turn my attention to the next holiday and not try to borrow and, and, and from a future time. Just be present in the moment with whatever holiday that is there. But I must confess to you, I've had trouble observing my own holiday principles this week. Especially as I have looked at Exodus chapter 26 and Exodus chapter 27. Because as I've poured over these texts, you know, I get my sheet of paper out with my text and I mark it up and I ask questions and I cross-reference and scouring the whole of the scriptures, connecting dots from Old to New Testament. One of the things that I found almost immediately is that if you're going to study the intricacies of the tabernacle, you got to be ready for the tabernacle and all of its imagery to drive you to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. To take you, so to speak, forward into Christmas. And over and over, whenever this subject of the tabernacle is addressed in the Scripture, you should expect, especially in the New Testament, in Romans and 1 Corinthians, Colossians, and over and over in Hebrews, you should expect that the mention of Christ will not be far behind the mention of the tabernacle. But in saying all that, we get ahead of ourselves just a little bit because to fully appreciate the tabernacle and its connection to Jesus, we have to really understand the full aim of our God Himself from the very beginning of time, what He had in mind for the establishment of the communion that He longs to have and longed to have with His people, even Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden. Yes, in a very real sense, the story of the tabernacle emerges from a larger, grander, even cosmic story that starts at the very beginning of time, in the very beginning dwelling place that God had with man right there in the Garden of Eden. Do You see, God's mission from the advent of creation is to live in perfect and unhindered communion with you and me on earth. That's what God's mission and desire has been from the very beginning. That we would have a dwelling place with Him, that He would have a dwelling place with us here on earth. 
When we open up the scriptures to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we see God forming that very first dwelling place for you and me, uh, didn't he? He formed this garden. We're told that God himself planted it there in the heart of Eden. And he did it with a perfect couple, Adam and Eve, who were created after his image and after his likeness. Why did he create them after his image and after his likeness? Because he longed to have fellowship with them. We see his love for them there in this beautiful garden where he provides for all of their needs. We see his love for them in that he enjoys such rich fellowship, even walking and talking with them in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden. We see his love for them in that he does not hide his will or his wishes from them. He gives them life-giving and life-protecting instruction telling them about the trees in the garden that they can eat and then safeguarding and boundaring that one tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they should not eat of and holding out for them the future prospect of when they pass the prohibition to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they will one day eat of the tree of life, a tree that will grant to them the promise of immortality. Everything about the portrait of Genesis 1 and 2 points, doesn't it, to the beautiful and unbroken fellowship that God had with and desires to have with His people, even us here in this room. Now, for many of you, you know the story of the Bible very well, even like the back of your hand. And so you know that this perfect communion didn't last very long. In fact, it lasted two chapters in the Bible. There's a lot of chapters in the Bible. Um, the, the glorious paradise part lasted for two chapters. Very small window of revelation is given to us with regards to this perfect communion. And we know that in the third chapter of Genesis, Adam and Eve fell they ate of the forbidden fruit and immediately, we're told, are banished from the garden. We might put it this way. They were expelled from the place where they dwelt in perfect fellowship with God and where everything was made for them and where all of the world was aright. They lost all of the blessings therein and they lost the benefit of being able to partake of the tree of life and securing that gift of immortality. And from that moment, what happens to Adam and Eve where they live? Well, as you and I live, they live east of Eden. We might say the very first exile that we ever see in the Bible happens there in Genesis chapter 3. As Adam and Eve experience the loss and are unable to re-enter into the paradise of the Garden of Eden. Interestingly, from that point in the Scripture, one of the ways that God speaks about His people, one of the ways that the Scripture reveals to us about God, is it speaks of Him in faraway terms. We don't hear terms like He walked with them in the garden in the cool of the day in exactly the same way as we saw it in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. No man continues on the earth graciously by God, but yes, now with the curse of sin and the reality of death, but God is in a faraway place, so to speak. God is in heaven, and we have to live out the consequences of the loss of His presence. But what we see in the Bible is that God didn't give up on plan A. God has been pursuing for Himself a dwelling place with His people from all eternity. And throughout the rest of Genesis, one of the ways that we see this is through the mysterious meetings that God has with individuals during times typically of great trial or times of, of pivotal transition in redemptive history where God comes to them and He makes promises to them and He shows them and displays to them a restored future of which they may hope for and look toward. Maybe you'll think of Noah in Genesis chapter 6, this patriarch of the Old Testament who the Lord preserved through his instructions of another building project, not a tabernacle, but a boat in this case, in order to escape what would become the apocalyptic destruction of the world through the flood. Noah is described after the flood in the world, almost in kind of a newly cleansed and baptized way. Noah is described as the one walking out of that ark, one who walked with God, almost in the language of Adam and Eve. 
but one in whom God established a covenant with in relationship to creation. We see a new humanity emerging. And it's there where we see a rebuilding of that mission after the devastation of the flood and the loss of the rest of humanity. We see something similar. The thread is kind of pulled through with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. You remember that God promised him there that through his very loins a seed is going to come forth. And a people are going to be so great that they're going to be more numerous than the stars in the sky. And guess what, Abraham? A place is going to be preserved for this people. Yes, a dwelling place. We we know it as the land of Canaan or as it's referred to in the scriptures, the promised land. Did you notice ever in the descriptions of the promised land how well exaggerated they sound, how hyperbolic they sound, almost too good to be true and yet true. This place called the land of Canaan where grapes are the size of my head and where the land flows with milk and with honey and something of the echo of, let's say, the Garden of Eden should be in your mind. Something of a dwelling place where God is going to be once again with His people on the earth. Yes, these promises come through these variety of patriarchs as the angel of the Lord comes to them. Well, we think of that, don't we, with Jacob in Genesis chapter 28, where he lay down at night and had a vision as he rested there with his head on a stone. And he saw a ladder opening up into the heavens and angels ascending and descending on it. As Jacob wakes up from this inglorious vision, what does he say? But I had no idea that God was in this place. I had no idea that I've come to Bethel, as he names it, the house of God. The place where it is that the Lord himself dwells. This is indeed the gate of heaven. It should have something of the echo of Eden to it. And then, yes, also something of the anticipation of of the new Canaan that is coming. But maybe also something of even the passage that we're in. That a house where God would dwell, not episodically, Not sporadically with particular patriarchs, not at just moments of crisis, but a permanent dwelling place where God himself would dwell with the people of Israel. Well, you'll remember in each of these instances, whether it's Noah or Abraham or Jacob, those moments where God came down and met with them in miraculous and vision-like ways or approached them as an angel of the Lord, those places are places where Well, those men built altars and sacrificed to the Lord and revisited those places over time. And those places became, shall we say it, sacred sites. Places in the memory of the people of God where God met with His people. Where in one sense we might say God is indicating to us that He has come to dwell on earth with man. You see, as we look as... The 21st century Bible readers at a passage like Exodus 26 and 27, we don't necessarily see as clearly as those who would have seen it in its original giving how significant this moment in redemptive history is. For God has brought His people of Israel out of Egypt. He's rescued them. He's instructed them now in His law. He's guiding them about what it means to be a nation that is under His leadership and guidance, that is run by grace but is instructed in obedience, what it would mean like to commune with Him. The time has come for Him to dwell with His people. And God comes in Exodus 26 and 27 to tell us that He wants to move in. That He's come down from heaven to Mount Sinai, but that's not close enough. He's coming down into the midst of the camp. Actually right into the middle of the camp. Equal distance from all of the tribes. So that everyone would be able to have access to the living God. And it's the first time since the Garden of Eden. Take this in. It's the first time since the Garden of Eden that we see God establish a permanent dwelling place with man on earth. Do you see something of what was recovered or what was lost in Eden is beginning to be recovered in earnest when we read about the construction of the tabernacle. And yet, let's be honest, it's only the beginning. It's very much only the beginning. 
As spectacular a moment as this is with regard to the advancement of redemptive history and God making a dwelling place with man on earth, as spectacular as it is, we can see that in the building of the tabernacle and all the instructions surrounding it, that the intimacy that Adam and Eve enjoyed in the Garden of Eden is, well, not quite up to that standard when we get to the tabernacle. The things have radically changed. There is a significant difference between the echoes of Eden we have in the tabernacle and looking back from the tabernacle to what Adam and Eve had in Eden, we know that this isn't a full recovery, but it's, well, it's the beginning. And we see that when we begin to look at its structure and we begin to understand its purpose. Last week, we considered the furniture in Exodus chapter 25, but today in 26 and 27, we consider the whole of the structure. We start with that outward or that outer courtyard, don't we? It's curtained, as you could hear in the, the reading, walled and enclosed in a rectangular fashion, covering no less than about 1,200 square yards in and around its encompassment. Entering the courtyard, you would enter it from the east, and one of the first things that your eyes would have been drawn to was the bronze altar, there on which the sacrifices for the sin offerings of the people would be given you would have also noticed the laver that was there for the cleansing of the priest because the sacrificial business was messy and the priest needed ways to cleanse their hands and their face from the sacrifices. Within that courtyard, you would have seen a, a building, a relatively small edifice that we've come to know as the tabernacle. And within that tabernacle, there were essentially two rooms, one that we call the holy place and one that is sometimes called the most holy place or as you probably best know it, the holy of holies. Three of those four pieces of furniture that we looked at in some detail last week together are there in that opening room as you pass through the curtain there into the holy place, the golden lampstand that gives light to the whole of the tabernacle that resembles the tree of life. The bread of the presence that undoubtedly memorializes God's provision of the people of Israel in the Old Testament as He rained bread from heaven, but also represents the presence of God's people. Twelve loaves baked every week in the presence of the Lord for the twelve tribes of Israel. And you would see in the altar of incense where constantly the, the whiff of the incense and the smoke would go up in the presence of the Lord, always symbolic of the prayers of God's people going up to the throne of grace. In the Holy of Holies, you would, have, you would have seen as you stood in the holy place this, this massive curtain, multicolored with the, the yarns that were mentioned in the text with two golden cherubim embroidered on there, uh, representing the fact that we are entering into a holy place like the throne room of God Himself, that inner sanctum as it was referred to. And just within that curtain, you would have seen that Ark of the Covenant that we spent time on last week. And atop of it, the mercy seat. It would have been there where the high priest would go in once a year to sprinkle the blood of the, 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 for the sin offering of the people. Um, and for the atonement for the sin of the nation of Israel. Now when you think of these uh, three places, this outer Cord in this tabernacle with the holy place and the holy of holies, you see uh, something of the, the structure of, of what this dwelling looked like. But how is it that this in any way is connected, as I've argued so far, with, well, with the Garden of Eden, the, the dwelling place of God with man? Well, there's several connections, isn't there? Uh, for starters, the garden and the tabernacle, both are structured in such a way that you enter from the east. Uh, you, you remember that the gate that led out of the Garden of Eden into what was undoubtedly a kind of wilderness for the people of, or for Adam and Eve in the original creation, um, was an East of Eden experience. They walked out of that gate and it was there that they were kept out of the Garden of Eden. It was there also that two cherubim were placed, wasn't it? Brandishing swords to be sure that they didn't get back in and partake of the tree of life lest they live forever and likely be um, hardened within their sinful state. Well, it was those two cherubim, of course, that are guarding the Holy of Holies as you enter into the presence of the Lord and where the Lord dwelt. 
In the garden and also in the tabernacle, there's a tree of life, isn't it? Yes, it looks different. The tree of life with real fruit in the garden of Eden for for Adam and Eve to partake of, but the tree of life that's full of light in the tabernacle that gives light to the whole place, this seven-branched menorah that reveals to us of its fruitfulness in its almond blossoms and its calyxes and in its flowers, what the tree of life was meant to depict and picture life in immortality. And the garden and the tabernacle, of course, both were places where the Lord Himself regularly, consistently dwelled with His people. Do you know another name for the tabernacle is literally the tent of meeting. This is where the Lord would come to meet with His people. And something, of, if we may say it, walked with the people of Israel. But despite all of these connections, right, there's, there's a lot of difference between these two places. For starters, the tabernacle, well, is hardly as intimate, hardly as richly fellowship-oriented as the Garden of Eden was when Adam and Eve walked and talked with the Lord. In fact, if you just think about the access that the people of Israel would have had to the tabernacle, it would have been, well, well let's just say it, next to nothing other than the priests who actually um, were uh, told and instructed by the Lord to take care of the tabernacle and lived, as it were, took their own living off of the, you know, the, the work of the tabernacle, uh, the people of Israel would not have had access to the tabernacle proper. They would have been able, at least the men uh, of Israel, uh, able to enter the outer court, um, able to bring an offering um, a, a, to the bronze altar, but probably that being the extent of it, um, and only then under the strictest of guidelines, not the ease of fellowship that we saw in the Garden of Eden. And even the priests themselves had to be careful. As we, If you've read through the book of Leviticus, and I know you've all done deep studies in the book of Leviticus, but if you have read through the book of Leviticus and you've considered the warnings associated with the priesthood and how the cleansing and uh, the right clothing and the, and the right timing is absolutely important for all of the work that they do, and if they don't do it correct, well, people may die. Doesn't sound a lot like the intimacy and fellowship of the Garden of Eden, does it? Sounds like there may be some stress involved with the nature of this fellowship that is offered to the people of Israel here in the tabernacle. But in looking at all of this with regards to the tabernacle, we must recognize that one of the indications, even in the text that we read, was that God's presence, though, with His people is not equally expressed, felt, and experienced by His people. Not in the way the Garden of Eden was originally structured, even in the way it was designed. Well, one way to prove this. You saw a list of materials, or at least some of the materials, uh, given here in the construction of the tabernacle. Do you notice that the gold and the silver was reserved for the tabernacle proper? That, that's where the gold overlay of the acacia wood frames was given, and that's where the golden cherubim are. Did you notice that when you got outside the tabernacle and you got to the altar and the laver, what they were made of? Bronze, right? A lesser precious metal. Because, because why? Well, there's something of a, what we might call a gradation of God's presence that's being revealed here. Um, there were people who could get to the altar that can't get to the Holy of Holies. There's a preciousness about the Holy of Holies that the altar at the same level does not retain. And subsequently, the fact that the further you get from the dwelling place of God in the tabernacle, it's reasonable to conclude that the further you get away from what? The very presence of God Himself. Now, you're all wonderful theologians. You know that God um, is omnipresent. He is uh, in every sense, everywhere. He's right here with us. You're, you're no place in planet earth where you can escape from the presence of the Lord. The psalmist reminds us this, right? Where are we going to go? Are we going to go to the heavens? Fly to the heavens? Am I going to go to the bottom of the sea? I can't go anywhere without the Lord being there. But there are special places that the Lord has set aside where He is pleased to dwell in a glorious manifestation of His holiness and of His power. 
And the glory cloud that's been leading the people of Israel by day and the fire by night is the special dispensation of God's presence where He has deposited, in a very real sense, the throne room of heaven onto the earth that He might indeed dwell with His people. And in a special way, the Lord is actually present in the tabernacle. We might go so far as to say where we are this morning on the Lord's Day with the Word of God opened and the collection of the saints, the union between heaven and earth that we enjoy through the mediation of the Lord Jesus Christ is in a special sense a place where the Lord dwells. That's an appropriate thing to note. And yet at the same time, in your lazy boy at home with that big cup of tea, the Lord is there too. But in a unique and special way, in the gathering of His people, God has made a deposit of His presence richly here in the tabernacle. And yet as we read about the tabernacle, we see, don't we, that there's a paradox at its heart. The paradox at the heart of the tabernacle is that it's a picture of God's closeness and is simultaneously a picture of God's distance. It's that we're closer to the Lord than we've ever been before since the Garden of Eden, but we're still not very, very close. And to be with the Lord, to be quite frank, is just kind of scary. With the warnings and the instructions, the difficulties of what it means to even approach the Lord. Think of the details that are given to us here just about the tabernacle being done right. And why the book of Leviticus is so long with cleanings and offerings. Because a sinner like you and I just can't rush up into the Holy of Holies. Out of God's love and care and protection of us, He gives us these instructions. You know, it's similar to what He did to Adam and Eve, wasn't it? He gave them life-giving and life-protecting instructions in the Garden of Eden. He said, don't eat this and eat this. And later you'll get to eat that. And they decided to reverse the order. Bad things happened. The recognition of those life-giving and life-protecting instructions in the Garden of Eden also relate right here to the tabernacle. But they point to the fact that though we are close to the Lord here in Exodus 26 and 27, we're also quite distant. In fact, one of the things that's, well, quite obvious, isn't it? Is that the tabernacle, aren't you finding it difficult, even in your mind, to imagine it? Right? Some of you, you know, you might want to later Google a picture of the tabernacle. And maybe, maybe go on YouTube and, and look at one of those 3D renderings of the tabernacle. Or, or the people who have made the life-size recreations of the tabernacle and, and kind of walk through it and as best as you can wrap your imagination and mind around it. But here's one of the things that will immediately impress you when you look at the tabernacle and you'll think to yourself, well, that's like another world. That's like, a, that's like another world. Exactly. It was like another world. In fact, I, I think that was lost on the priests themselves, you see. You know, when the priests would have nosed themselves into the to the tabernacle in the holy place and they saw that seven-branched menorah and they saw, did you catch it in the reading, the, the yarns of, of red and, and purple and of blue? Uh, cosmic colors, colors of the sky, colors of the, of the heavens. The, the menorah as a, as a picture of the tree of life is also, as scholars have noted, a picture of the seven uh, lamps that light the heavens, that is the sun and the moon and the five visible planets. When you walked into the tabernacle, you walked into like, an, like a picture, a microcosm of the cosmos itself. You were walking in to a portrait of, of heaven, a place where prayers are going up as smoke and incense, where God's presence and throne room is within reach. It would have struck the priesthood clearly that they were no longer in Kansas. That they were in another world, this curtained off, walled off world of a place where heaven itself is now made a deposit. Where God has recovered so much of the beachhead of His presence on the earth. You know, when you walked in the Holy of Holies, actually that Ark of the Covenant that stored the Ten Commandments and later Aaron's um, blossoming rod and the stipulation covenant from Exodus chapter 24 and that jar of manna for memorial's sake. And you came to that mercy seat and a glory cloud descended on it. When you, when you walked into that, uh, that space, you would, have, you would have known that you're in another 
orbit. In fact, it's why when you look over the Old Testament, several names are given to the Ark of the Covenant. It's not the only name that's given to it. Sometimes it's given the name footstool. Because thrones, traditionally in the ancient Near East at the time, had, had footstools. And, and literally, the, the picture is one where God is sitting on the throne in heaven, but His footstool of His throne extends all the way to earth. It's as if there in the Holy of Holies, the feet of God are planted on planet earth as He sits in the heavenlies. It's a place where heaven and earth touch. They would have known that they have actually come to another world. They would have known that in this moment, it's in a sense that they have entered into heaven itself. And yet God, as with His people, with all of His withness that's given right here in the text, if we can call it as such, spoke of a great distance, didn't it? God was present, if I can put it this way, But he was still in another world. He still was in heaven, so to speak. Making his presence known on the earth, dwelling here in a footstool. But he wasn't yet, as it were, in our world in the richest and fullest sense of the word. Though a pivotal moment, as the construction of the tabernacle was, it pointed, isn't it, to something greater than itself. It pointed, of course... To a tabernacle that was to come. Now, I, I warned you, it's 1st of November, and yet we've got to talk about Christmas. We have to talk about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ because this is where the scriptures take us, doesn't it? And all of you are, well, your mind is going right now to John chapter 1. You're remembering the prologue of John, you're remembering those open refrains, aren't you? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, where do, you, where do you think John got that phrase? Well, he's borrowing it from Genesis chapter 1. You see, I told you this stuff goes a long time back. And he's now connecting the creation of the world with this one called the Logos, the Word, even Christ Himself. And do you remember at the end of that prologue in verse 14, he, he gives us this well, this taper, tabernacle dwelling place imagery. He, he says to us, in the beginning, or oh, and the word became flesh, and what? It dwelt among us. Now I looked through the translations this week, you know, the ESV, the the NIV, the King James. They all use the word dwelt. It's a fine translation, but I must say I'm I'm an old soul myself. I kind of like the clunkiness of the Greek here. In John 1.14, the actual rendering is that he pitched his tent or tabernacles among us. What John is trying to say is that this tabernacle that we've been talking about, well, it symbolizes, it represents the fulfillment of what would come when Christ came. When Jesus came, he wasn't, you see, present in another world and yet existing in our world. He, he was not curtained off for only a handful or a set-apart few to see and to engage. No, we're told that he was made like us in every way, yet without sin. And John tells us in that same verse, in verse 14, that not only was he tabernacling among us, but that he says this. Isn't this curious? We saw his glory. What was the reason they couldn't go into the Holy of Holies? It was because of the glory of God. They couldn't handle the glory of God and survive. And yet John, astonishingly, throws it out there like it's, like it's ordinary fare. He says, we saw his glory. And the question should be ringing in your mind if you actually know the structure of the Old Testament and the power of the glory of God. Is How is this possible? And John tells us. He says, we saw the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Yes, there it is. Grace makes seeing the glory of God possible. There's the grace. And, well, how did the grace come? Well, listen, we're already on a roll now. 
We're already on a roll. We have, we have already talked about Christmas too early. What's about talking about Good Friday for a second? How can we talk about the tabernacle and not talk a little bit about Good Friday? Because isn't it there? Isn't it there where we see the grace of God ultimately revealed in the fullness of what the tabernacle pointed to? That Ark of the Covenant and that mercy seat that sprinkled the blood of bulls and goats year after year for the sins of the people. The writer of Hebrews tells us the blood of bulls and goats can't wash away sin. We need a Lamb of God. A Lamb of God, which John the Baptist points to and tells us it is Jesus Christ. He is the one who takes away the sin of the world. And it's as if in that moment on the cross, spiritually speaking, as the Lord Jesus Christ was dying, the blood was being sprinkled on the mercy seat for the last time. The blood that the mercy seat had been looking for the only blood that would actually satisfy the wrath of God towards sin, the, the, the only blood that could truly atone for the likes of you and me, that blood was spiritually speaking, sprinkled as it were on the mercy seat and beautifully, you know, beautifully, one of just the most glorious and mysterious passages, the end of the Gospel of Matthew tells us that in the moment, right, where Jesus is hanging on the cross and he relinquishes his spirit and breathes his last we're told that in that moment, that curtain that kept all of the people of Israel out of the Holy of Holies was torn right down the middle from top to bottom. As if to say to us, you're welcome into the presence of the Lord by virtue of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And don't you see that? That on that third day, yes, I'm going all the way to Easter. On that third day, he broke forth from the grave. And was victorious over our sin and death. And you know in 40 days. Yes even to ascension. He would be at the right hand of the Father. Ruling and reigning on high. And when he left. What did he say to us? What did he say to us? What was his mission? What was his goal? Well to prepare a place for us. To prepare a place for us. Why? Because he was going to come back. And when he comes back. What's he going to do? He's going to take us with Him so that we could dwell with Him for a really nice long Christmas vacation. So that we could dwell with Him forever. Do you know one of the, the wisdom that you see of the ancient church, even as they ordered their calendar, was they created this thing called Advent. And some of you probably are beginning to pick up resources on Advent. There's some wonderful resources on the bookshelf here at Cornerstone for Advent. Hint, hint. You can go by and you can get and work your way through. But not before Advent begins. You understand what I'm saying to you. Is that in the Advent celebration of the historic church, we think of it as preparing for Christmas, but they thought of it as preparing for the second coming. Uh, if you look through the readings of the typical lectionary in the Anglican church, for instance, it's all the readings about second coming <laughs> that are given to us at Advent. Why? Because, well, it's not just about remembering that Christ came. It's about preparing for Christ's return. That we are a people who live between the comings of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're closer than we've ever been. And we need to prepare for the Lord's coming. And that in the Advent season, we are reminded of the fact that the greatest time of the year is not looking back at Christmas. It's the time of the year that will come when a greater Christmas arrives. When the Lord Jesus Christ pulls back the heavens like a scroll and descends with power riding a white horse. And he welcomes you to the communion table of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he makes all things right. Puts all of his enemies under a footstool for his feet. And justice is served and mercy is given. And the sweet fellowship of God that he has planned from all eternity past to live on earth with man will be so in the new heavens and the new earth. So much so that how could we not end up in a future that we have not yet seen, but don't we all long for? Well, John, 
in the better writing, even the more fuller writing of the richness of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation tells us that when that day comes, we will see a new heaven and a new earth, a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride beautifully adorned. John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, look, God's dwelling place is now among his people and he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Friends, do you not long for that day? Do you not long for that day? Do you not find that when you dwell on the dwelling of the Lord that we will have on that day that uh, you become a little more unhinged from the life here in the right way? And your heart begins to be turned with a longing for the life that you were made for and designed for. The one that Jesus has won for you. The one he's preparing for you. And the one he's going to come back and get you and take you there. I pray so. And maybe this Thanksgiving we start there. We start by giving thanks for the home that Christ is preparing for us. And that we begin to prepare in Advent for the day in which he takes us there and carries us, as it were, like a bride across the threshold. And we find for the first time the reason for why even when we were at home, we were always a little homesick. And we realize that we have finally come home to a place that we will never leave, to a wholeness that our hearts longed for, to the perfection of the face of Jesus Christ which will be our horizon for all eternity. There is no sweeter news than that, my friends. Let's get ready to meet Jesus. Father in heaven, we pray that you would do just that by this text. That we as a people, by dwelling in this space with you through the power of the word and your spirit today, would find that we are increasingly prepared for the day in which we meet Christ. Lord Jesus, burn away the dross. Purify the gold. Get us ready for the tent of meeting. For the day in which you, O oh Jesus, with your flesh, which the writer of Hebrews calls like a curtain, that through that flesh we indeed enter into the heavenly places. Let us be prepared for the day in which faith turns to sight and yes, prayer turns to praise. And we find for the first time we are at home in the dwelling place of God. Lord, until that day, continue to meet with us here. Carry us and lead us in this tabernacled life by the power of the Spirit who indwells as pilgrims looking to that promised land until the day that we arrive and we know that you have carried us the whole of the way. Meet us here, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.